It is September 10th, 2018, and you are at the Hollywood Theater, about to watch a 35mm print of Sometimes a Great Notion. Those are some big baby blue eyes on that screen, and this is some kick-ass Oregon history. Welcome to another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked out history folks at ORHistory.com. I'm your host, Andy Lindbergh, and under the guidance of resident historian Doug Kank Crispin, we profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. Kick-Ass Oregon History is a presentation of ORHistory.com and is supported by listeners like you. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit ORHistory.com and click Donate. Today's podcast was brought to you by our Sometimes a Great Notion road trip sponsors, Oregon Film, Water Avenue Coffee, Bull Run Distilling, and Great Notion Brewery. They help support Kick-Ass Oregon history, so you should support them. Buy their quality Oregon products over and over and over again. You're part of the family of Members of Newman Foreman Productions and Universal City Studios will be on the Oregon coast through early September filming the screen version of Springfield novelist Ken Kesey's book, Sometimes a Great Notion. It's a contemporary logging story about the Stamper family set in Oregon. The picture stars Paul Newman, Lee Remick, Henry Fonda, Richard Jekyll, and Michael Sarazen. The actual location shooting site is off-limits to television cameras. This is the Stamper home where many of the scenes will be filmed. Right now, crews from a number of crafts are busy putting the finishing touches on the... In the summer of 1970, a noteworthy movie was filmed on the central Oregon coast. That movie was Universal Studios' Sometimes a Great Notion, produced by the Newman Foreman Company and starring the heartthrob himself, Paul Newman. Based on the critically acclaimed Ken Kesey novel of the same name, the film is an important document in Oregon's film history. Not familiar with it? Give this here a listen. From the studio that gave you airport, now sometimes a great notion. These are the stampers of Oregon. Their motto, never give a inch, and they live it. Paul Newman. If you're making threats, I think you can make them plainer than that. What kind of violence you got in mind? Henry Fonda. You haven't got the whisper of a clue what the hell this family's all about. Lee Remick. You seem to give Hank what he wants, what he needs. You seem satisfied. Are you? Michael Sarazen. The prodigal son returns. And that's me, right? The question is, why? Richard Jekyll. We can use every last stamp we can get a hold of. The Stampers of Oregon. They think they own the world. 
except the world has changed and they haven't. Rugged integrity is on their side. On the other side, everybody. Be nice if that whole family dropped dead. This episode of Kick-Ass Oregon History is a self-guided audio driving tour of the film sites from the movie. You can listen and journey to these specific sites, and when you hear the... will tell you cool shit about the film. Or you can listen from home, or on the bus, or in your yurt in Lane County. Same cool shit, so it really doesn't matter to us, man. We'll post a link to a Google map for the tour on this episode's page at orhistory.com. Let's start the tour at the Dee River in Lincoln City. At 120 feet in length, it has been called the shortest river in the world. The diminutive estuary has absolutely nothing to do with the film, it's just a cool Oregon place to start. From the park, drive south about five miles on Highway 101 to the turnoff to Kernville. You have most likely heard of Ken Kesey's book, Sometimes a Great Notion. Some have considered it Oregon's novel. At the October 1970 San Francisco Film Festival, Newman stated that some of the most prominent literary techniques in the novel would be tough to translate to film. We didn't even try. His wrenched verbal rhythms and violations of time and space are among the greatest appeals of the book. But we will not have a lot of flashes forward and back and some of the other things that would be necessary. We told it as a straight story. So let's get this out of the way. The movie is not the book sometimes a great notion. Oregonian film critic Ted Mahar said in 1972 that sometimes a great notion, the movie, was an extremely simplified adaptation of Ken Kesey's novel. The differences are not subtle or slight. Take the goddamn Oregon rain, for example. Do you remember the centralness of the Oregon coastal rain in Kesey's novel? Because nothing can be done about the rain except blaming. And if nothing can be done about it, why get yourself in a sweat about it? Matter of fact, it can be convenient to have around. Got troubles with the old lady? It's the rain. Got worries and frets about the way the old bus is falling to pieces right under you? It's the rutting rain. Got a deep, hollow ache? Bleeding cold down inside the secret heart of you from too many deals fallen through, too many nights in bed with the little woman without being able to get it up, too much bitter and not enough sweet. Yeah, that there brother is just as well blamed on the rain. Falls on the just and the unjust alike, falls all day long, all winter long, every winter, every year. You might just as well give up and admit that's the way it's gonna be and go take a little snooze, or you'll be mouthing the barrel of your 12-gauge the way Everett Patterson at Maple did last year, or sampling Snail Killer the way Merry Wold Boys did over at Sweet Home. Roll with the blow. That's the easy out. Blame it on the rain and bend with the wind, 
and lean back and catch yourself 40 winks, you can sleep real sound when the rain is a lullaby in you. But I tell you, things is different in Wakanda. Real nice and sound. Because geese ain't letting us sleep. And the Lord ain't taking the blame. Not this year. In Wakanda. But when you watch the film, there is very little precipitation portrayed in the picture. The uncooperative, sunny summer Oregon weather was a difficulty for the crew and forced them to fuck with the shooting schedule at specific locations. One paper declared, If this clear weather continues, rain and fog will have to be faked for the scenes at Elk City and on the mudflats at South Beach. Producer John Foreman said, We had hell locating this picture. The Oregon Kesey was writing about in 1950 simply doesn't exist anymore. Remember, Ass Kicker, that was spoken in 1970. The entirety of the movie was filmed in Lincoln County. No cookie-cutter Burbank sound stages here, folks. Pure made in Oregon. Most of the scenes were shot within a 30-mile radius of Newport. A spokesman for the Newman Foreman Production Company said that the area was chosen over Florence for a few reasons. One was that housing 150 cast and crew would be much easier around Newport due to the numerous hotels. The other was the scenic beauty of the area, and how they felt that would translate well on film. Ted Mahar reflected that, The photography throughout is just gorgeous, and it makes you want to run right out and visit Oregon. The movie company was obviously entranced with the scenery, for in a subtle way, it emerges as one of the characters. There are three exquisite scenes in the film. The first being the drowning of Joe Ben Stamper. Newman says he bought the rights to the book just because of this one scene, and that was a good call. One interesting point to consider as you watch the film, there is no musical underscore in this sequence. In a movie from our current era, orchestral drama would come pouring off the screen. Actor Richard Jekyll was nominated for an Oscar for his role in the film. Another noteworthy scene is the first clear-cutting sequence. It is absolutely beautiful in its texture and depth of total destruction. Almost like an 8mm elementary school documentary titled, This is Clear-Cutting! The scene really lays out, step by step, how the clear-cutting task was performed around 1970. The third visually noteworthy segment involves the Stamper's Benson rafts on the sunny Siletz River. In addition to being gorgeous, the scene was difficult to shoot, involving three cameras, a helicopter, and a quarter mile of logs. To call sometimes a great notion a drunken film would be an understatement. Catherine Wilson wrote that, 
Tales of Newman's drinking went largely unnoticed, because compared to the rest of us Oregon drinkers, he seemed to fit right in. But a few folks did notice. Oregon film critic Ted Mahar visited the Stamper House during filming and noted that, Between takes, Newman clutched his Olympia cans as if they were Linus's blanket. In his biography on Newman, appropriately entitled Newman, biographer Sean Levy quotes Newman as saying, I drank whiskey a lot. For a while, it really screwed me up. We were finishing shooting Notion. I don't know if it was the pressure of the picture, but I was really out of line. We spoke with Sean Levy, author of Paul Newman, A Life. What does that look like in kind of a Newman lens? What is out of line at that time? Newman had a tremendous physical capacity for alcohol. He could drink, this is not a lie, a case of Coors or Budweiser a day, every day for years. Um, he was a fitness freak. He would, um, even into his 60s and 70s, he, you know, at one point someone gave him a, a crunch board and he gave himself a hernia from, from how hard he exercised. He, he was always trim, but he was a heavy drinker. And most of the time it was beer. But for a period from about 1960 to 78, he was also drinking spirits. And there was a lot of whiskey on the set of Sometimes a Great Notion. Perhaps not during working hours, but, you know, there's only so many hours in a day. If you're going to put away a case of beer and drink whiskey, you're going to be drinking while you're working. Um, he had us, you know, he, he, he was practicing, uh, you know, he was still learning the race car game. Uh, this is like 1970, 72. Um, he's still new to that. And one of the things he was toying with was dirt bike riding. And he had a motorcycle that he kept at the house he rented for the duration of the production. And he cracked it up on the beach, um, busted up his ankle, it turned out to be just, just a really bad sprain. And he was able to continue the, the work without too much delay but um, you know he, he was pushing pushing the edge and he continued to do that he drank for another six or seven years he gave up the hard stuff um, not long after uh, shooting this film and then he had one or two uh, dalliances with it when he had some difficulties but for the most part he just became a beer drinker after that but he never really gave up drinking As a brief side note, sometimes a great notion is often recounted for another noteworthy incident. On November 8, 1972, a new monthly cable pay channel debuted. Sometimes a great notion, now retitled Never Give an Inch, was Home Box Office's first broadcast. which is a really weird choice, but it just goes to show a number of things. How small HBO was, that this was the best they could do for their opener, how little regarded this film was, that Universal made it available for this experiment, and um, you know how far we've come. If you want to get in touch, with a mythological Oregon. The Oregonness on display and sometimes a great notion is a fun gateway to that journey. The Oregon that is depicted in the movie is long gone, besides being 
unusually sunny, and it may never have existed in the first place. But it is fun to imagine stomping into Moe's in your cork boots. You've bought the vintage logger jacket on eBay. You may as well make the pilgrimage to these small Oregon towns where the laborers who passed long, long ago knew the meaning of real work in real America. But the Oregon portrayed doesn't feel necessary to tell this film's version of sometimes a great notion. In fact, in April 1969, an article stated that the film might be shot in Canada. We would argue, having experienced the locations and watched the film, that the film would have been nearly the same if it had been set in British Columbia. After you turn off Highway 101, the Stamper House is a little over a mile down 229. Look at the bank across the river. You can't miss it. Kernville. The 16-room house was built for $95,000 in 1970 currency. 30 studio carpenters labored to construct the place. The Oregonian stated that, The Stamper House hugs the ground, massive looking, and designed of timbers and lumber reminiscent of yesteryear. Gray and shiny and wind-weathered, a look of ageless durability. Today, though, it looks pretty damn fancy. But it is a very big house. At one point during the filming, the home held 350 people, including Governor of Oregon Tom McCall. Audio from some of Dave Egan's 1970 KOIN television news broadcast follows to give you some context of what was going on at the time. The design of the house is the product of art director Phil Jeffries who also was art director for another Newman Foreman picture, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And hopefully unquestionably belong in it. And then the next step, uh, when you feel that you're somehow on a proper wavelength with that and feel that you've found it, then the next step is to convert it into something that will function for a motion picture company and uh, not look obvious about it. That's probably uh, one of the major keys, isn't it? Uh, getting it authentic and yet uh, also getting it so that the uh, production people can actually move around and get the required scenes. That's probably uh, the toughest part of it, to keep it uh, looking totally believable, which we always strive for and I hope we succeed in doing, still make it function and still make it so that we can see the most of it. Many times we have to break a lot of rules and hope <laughs> fervently we don't get caught at it. <laughs> How long does it take uh, you and your crews to actually uh, build this set? Well, this particular set uh, was quite a stretch in designing uh, about two months uh, working from several different concepts and then finally down into the final stage. Uh, you're looking at the moment at six weeks and one day of work from the ground up. Phil, what problems do you have in trying to build a house uh, from a book? <laughs> oh, heavens, I hardly know where to start on that. Uh, first of all, of course, is the, what you hope will be the proper concept. Uh, to reach for that particular exterior and interior that uh, belongs to the people and which the people will fit believably and comfortably. Curiously, the crew built a quintessential Oregon house, but they couldn't find the furnishings locally that looked Oregon-y enough. It was a created Oregonness after all. Reading the book and your own impressions of Oregon, that's how the Stamper home was built and furnished. 
One of the two key men in this task is set director Bill Kernan. He, along with art director Phil Jeffries, has nurtured the construction of the home for the film version of Springfield novelist Ken Kesey's book, Sometimes a Great Notion, to a point nearing completion when these scenes were filmed. This is the second time Kernan and Jeffries have worked together on a Newman Foreman picture. Jeffries says of his co-worker, he's one of the great pros in the business. If I had my way, I would never do another picture without him. I talked with Kernan about the problems involved in providing an authentic set for the Stamper home. Uh, the different types of furnishings, which he does uh, in quite a lot of detail, and uh, this makes it easy. Uh, the toughest part is finding the things that go in the house, and uh, we were up here on a survey trip for about a week, ten days, and I looked around the area trying to find things, and I saw that it was going to be total disaster trying to find the stuff up here for this house. So uh, between Paramount, Universal, Fox, and uh, a couple of other studios around Hollywood, I gathered all of the things together I saw it necessary, and we loaded up two 40-foot vans, and we have them in a warehouse across the river here, ready to move in as soon as uh, the painters get finished with the house. It's a rarity in the motion picture business today when a completely livable home such as this is constructed on location. Usually, just portions are constructed on location and the rest of the filming is done back in the Hollywood sound stages. The Stamper home is a credit to the abilities of Jeffries and Kernan, two of the behind-the-scenes men whose role in the production is critical to the success of the picture. Bill, you have a, one of the main jobs of actually furnishing this structure for the Stamper home uh, in the picture. How do you go about uh, visualizing what was in a house in that particular era? Well, a lot of it comes from past experience in this picture business, doing the same kind of a job. A lot of the tips come actually out of the book. The uh, descriptions that Kesey has made in his book of the, of the people that live in the house, how they live. The Oregonness of the Stamper House is a special effect. And the inside of the home wasn't the only special effect at the location. The rain scene at the Stamper House had to be faked, because remember, it didn't rain much on the coast in the summer of 1970. A 13,400-gallon swimming pool was used as a water tank for tall rain towers that supplied the special effect. The towers could spray pretend raindrops across an area 30 feet in diameter. Two additional handheld rain towers looking much like giant shower heads could be positioned behind the camera. More water spouts were discreetly blended into the sides of the house. A nest of hoses led from the pump to the pool to the towers to the spouts. As chaotic as it sounds, sections of the set were numbered for the fake rain and could be independently controlled. A wind machine was available to the crew as well. After the production, Red Lundstedt, a local logger, as a matter of fact, purchased the home from the studio. But as sturdy as the Stamper House set was, it was still just a set and had to be seriously modified to make it inhabitable. The house needed wiring, plumbing, and a foundation, but the home did reportedly come with one weird feature, a, quote, stipulation that it never be used for a movie or similar type of production. Today, you can rent out the Stamper House for $489 a night. 
because Hank Stamper's house on the Wakanda Aga River is a goddamn Airbnb. You know, it's funny because looking at the house, I would not have thought that this would have been the Stamper house. Um, you know, we watched the movie and it is recognizably that, but it kind of looks like a 1980s pseudo Victorian house that you'd see in, you know, a subdivision in Gresham, that sort of thing. Any other thoughts? Uh, it's easy to get to. There's a pull-off on just right across the road. We've been able to cross back and forth safely. You could even kind of scrabble down to the uh, waterside if you wanted to. Um, Definitely worth the stop. Yeah, yeah, highly recommended. Now, let's head south on 229 to the town of Toledo. 229 is a lovely, windy road through some real Oregon. Rough-looking little rural bergs, abundant clear-cuts, and a lush green canopy even in the month of August. Nearly 50 years later, it is still quite in character with the film. But car sickness-prone listeners beware. That shit can get real pukey. The trip is about 32 miles and it should take you a windy 45 minutes. Toledo. Once you get to Toledo, park around City Hall at 206 North Main Street. A whole bunch of the film was shot in the town. Be sure to check out the Toledo Centennial Mural in the City Hall parking lot and right across the street from the site of the former Ross Theater. It's quite a work of art. The interpretive plaque states that the featured figures and motifs are drawn from actual photographs of early Toledo and represent important historical influences. Ceramic tile nearly jumps to folksy life in the whimsical display. At the time of its completion, in November 2005, the 18-foot by 96-foot mosaic mural was the largest outdoor tile mural in the Northwest. Look for the old logger's groovy plaid shirt. You will also discover the filming of sometimes a great notion scenes at the Ross Theater prettily portrayed in mosaic tile. Surely you will notice the marquee at the theater proudly proclaims they are projecting sometimes a great notion, the movie they are actually filming at the same time. Trippy time travel shit, Toledo. Well done. Across the street from this mural, at 203 North Main, is the Cascade West Building. This is where the Ross Theater had been since 1927. Built by Vern Ross, the Egyptian-style 436-seat movie theater was a cornerstone for the Toledo community. It was also the Wakanda Theater, owned by Willard Eggleston in the film. Look at the corner of the building on 1st and Main. That is where the theater was. 
Special effects artists had to create a custom ladder that would not break the lights in the marquee when Eggleston fell to his untimely death in the film. Now look a little to the right, as that is where the Union office was, the WW Local 81 Union Hall, right next door to the Wakanda Theater. That's where Paul Newman cut the desk in half with his chainsaw in the movie. The Toledo Centennial History Center is certainly worth your visit. It is at 208 South Main Street, so just two blocks down. They have a bunch of old logging tools and photos, as well as an interpretive display dedicated to the Ross Theater. There isn't much else that deals with sometimes a great notion. There is a movie poster and a binder with some news clippings about the filming, but that's about it. One online source stated that there was an original script for the film at the museum, but the fine gentleman working there when we visited said that was not correct to his knowledge. But they do have a self-guided walking tour of historic Toledo buildings. Check the History Center out, and leave them a few bucks, too. We did. The museum is open just a few hours for a few days a week, so be sure to call ahead. And while you're in Toledo, you could stop in the Green Dragon Weed Store at 185 North Main Street. We did. They have a solid cannabis selection. The bud tenders are quite helpful, and the front of the store features a nice collection of restored classic motorcycles. Trey Paul Newman, and quite in character for the bike racing Hank Stamper we see in the film. Which brings us to Elk City. If you drive past Toledo, you can continue on Highway 20 to Elk City, where the dirt track motorcycle scene was filmed, as well as a tiny snippet in the concern called Stamperville. One way in is a few miles of gravel road, the other is paved, but it is essentially a loop around the back of Toledo. There's really no need to go to Elk City, but we did it anyway, just for you. It's not a city. We didn't see any elk. But if you're super geeked out, there's a nice park along the river, and it is a pretty drive. Now, let's head to Newport. Take Highway 20 West toward the ocean, the Pacific Ocean. It's about a seven mile trip, so it shouldn't take you too long. Head over to the original Moe's on the historic bayfront at 622 Southwest Bay Boulevard.
Moe's is a classic Oregon dining location. Established in 1946, the restaurant makes a brief appearance in the film. But in real life, during the 1970 filming, Moe's became the go-to hangout spot for the cast and crew when in Newport, all hours of day or night, and anything they wanted. The production, it seems, dropped a lot of dough on Moe. Sorry about that. Filming costs for the feature were reported to run up to $50,000 a day in 1970s dollars, or about $325,000 a day in 2018 funds. The film had about a $4 million budget, and much of it was spent in these little central coastal towns. The following is from a 1970 KOIN interview with a local grocer in Newport. Well, I think, Dave, the uh, general feeling in the community is one that these people can't help but do us a lot of good economically. As you know, uh, in most parts of the state, uh, we have unemployment uh, that's rather severe in some areas, although not so much here. And this type of industry, uh, particularly one that lasts for four months, uh, like Foreman and Newman Productions are in this area, can't help but uh, bring in a, a great deal of money in the whole county because they're shooting, um, golly, I guess four or five major sites all over the county and uh, within a 20 mile uh, area and you, uh, you can't help but affect every community in the area, Dave. I, I... What's the reaction been of the business community so far? Well, I can't speak for the whole business community because I haven't talked to all of them, but in, for the ones I have talked to, it's been very, very good. Uh, when Warren Merrill, uh, first approached me in February and warns with the State Department of Economic Development about working with him and putting together a program to attract the movie makers here. Um, we talked about what they would do for the area. In other words, what could I sell to help uh, facilitate moving them in here? And uh, one of the things they told us would they would buy as many things as they could locally. And in fact, they're doing even better than that. They're buying, um, for instance, all their clothing for the movie, all their materials, building products, and this sort of thing, uh, uh, supplies, food, uh, all of these things they're buying locally. So they've certainly, uh, if you have to name a good corporate citizen to have come into an area, Foreman and Newman Productions certainly have to come out on top there. They have been truly a good corporate citizen. And these people are business people as well as professional movie makers. While the residents of the community have had high praise for the motion picture company, members of the film company have expressed complete happiness with the way they have been treated by local residents. This is Dave Egan on the Business Beat in Newport. Warren Merrill, the originator of today's Oregon film out of the Oregon governor's office, also addressed the economic issue. But he didn't put it in terms of the picture's budget. He also addressed the cast and crew and their individual benefit to the state. Out of the sometimes a great notions company, four people bought new cars. Some people bought campers. Some bought stereo equipment. And there are hundreds of incidents you can't account for. But none of that is included in the film's budget. So uh, here we are. At the Bay Haven Inn, which of course is the snag in the film. Yep. But in the book, there was watered down whiskey. How does your Jim Beam taste? 
just as hot and unpleasant as I expected it to be. To the right of Moe's is the Bay Haven Inn, which was the snag in the film. Definitely stop in for a historic drink at this location. Not a lot of artisanal, small-batch Northwest whiskeys at the Bay Haven Inn, but there is a signed-by-Ken-Kesey copy of a Notion title page hanging on the stage. Not a goddamn can of Olympia in sight, though. What are your thoughts on the, the snag as we're sitting here drinking? Well, honestly, I feel like it's... it's... Get, in, get, in a, get in a little closer. What are your thoughts on the snag as we're sitting here having a drink? I feel like it is as close as the Newport waterfront can come to a legitimate working man's bar. And uh, prices are pretty reasonable. Drinks taste good. Mighty big shot that you got there of your yeah, whiskey. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a, a, a generous free pour from uh, our uh, friendly bartender. You know, I, I think about where do the guys who are working across the street in the fish processing plants, where do they come? And that's maybe the Bay Haven Inn is, is one of them. Yeah, there's a lot of pictures of fishing boats hanging up on the wall. And of course, the ubiquitous video poker, uh, a few life preserver rings as well, and a beat up pool table. So it's kind of kind of classic. Fast, you mean you here? Yeah, yeah, I feel like. You know, any any bar that's been around for a while is still going to be connected to the fishing industry, and one that's over a hundred years old. Yeah, according yeah, to you know, the, the pictures of the guys and the boats on the wall may, may uh, be forgotten, uh, but they're still got their pictures up on the wall. So, you know, they haven't been taken down and generic old-timey pictures put up. A classic stop on the Sometimes a Great Notion movie tour. Absolutely. Now, once you've sobered up, let's drive north up Highway 101. As you head up on your right, just after the Newport Pig and Pancake, you might see the old Midway Movie Theater at 453 Southwest Coast Highway. The 400-seat theater closed in 1992. Along with the Ross Theater in Toledo, it was one of the local movie houses that projected sometimes a great notion on the film's coastal debut. Newman Foreman had had some box office success before with Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, but Notion was not particularly well received. As we shall examine in a bit, Levy's biography details Newman's thoughts on the film's reception. Those schmucks at Universal released it in sporadic spurts across the country, mostly in drive-ins. They killed it before it got a chance to attract any serious attention. And also this title, sometimes a great notion, didn't give any idea of what it was about. But one place the film did particularly well was here on the central Oregon coast. When Notion was shown at Lincoln City's Bijou Theater, both daily viewings were filled for a week. Oh, and FYI, the Portland premiere 
was at the Baghdad on Hawthorne. Next, let's keep heading north on Highway 101 to the Fogarty Creek State Recreation Area, about 16 miles north. Should take you about 25 minutes. Park on the east side of the highway and you can walk under 101 to the beach. Let's do that. Fogarty Beach. Fogarty Beach was the location of the loggers' picnic in the film. As Sean Levy told us earlier, Newman banged up his ankle while riding his motorcycle on this beach. For a while, they thought it was broken, and the film production shut down on July 29, 1970. Production started up again two weeks later, and Newman was the director of the film and would receive the sole on-screen credit for the film's directorness. Levy notes Newman as saying, To act and direct at the same time is like sticking a gun in your mouth. I don't think I'd ever do it again. Newman had difficulty editing the film. Maybe from two directors' footage? Who knows? Oregonian film critic Ted Mahar wrote that Newman wanted a fairly simple, direct style, which the original director of Notion, Richard Culla, tended to prefer a highly complicated but very clever visual style, like he deployed in the film Zigzag. Mahar clarified that director Newman's visual style is simple, but not pedestrian. Yeah, the film was originally to be directed by a fellow named Richard Cola, and um, he was not a very experienced director. In, in retrospect, it's a really curious thing that Newman hired him. Um, and you're working with, you know, Lee Remick and Newman and Richard Jekyll and Henry Fonda, a real veteran cast, uh, Michael Sarazen. And the actors, they look like horses. They know when they've got an inexperienced rider. And this guy was very ambitious. And there are shots that are in the finished film that are clearly his work. As a director, Newman had a very plain style. He favored actors. He would move the camera. He would try lighting tricks. But by and large... Even in uh, The Glass Menagerie, which was shot by the great Michael Ballhaus, Newman played it safe. And there are shots in this film that are not safe shots. There, People are having dinner and the camera's spinning around the table. And it's an extremely difficult thing to orchestrate. Um, and because of the difficulty that this inexperienced director had with these shots, he was fired and Newman replaced him. So then he had a bunch of footage that this guy had shot in one particular style that he had to find ways to mesh with his plain style. And I believe that the script was evolving as well because as, as we understand, it's a very difficult novel to adapt and maybe you finally figure out how to do something after you're done shooting. So you try and edit in such a way you can, you know, perhaps mirror the prose style or you know, bring up some of the subtexts that are in there without, you know, giving someone a line of dialogue to speak. So it was kind of, it was a bit of a puzzle. It was like uh, some two people building a tunnel from opposite directions and trying to meet in the middle. Several scenes were cut in the editing process, including the one where Leland Stamper humps his sister-in-law Viv Stamper, which is kind of fucking creepy, but was also kind of the fucking point of the story, right? 
the Los Angeles Herald-Examiner hoped for a genuinely extraordinary movie, a movie with the size, scope, heroic struggle, intensely dramatic conflict, and an encounter with important values and ideas. But it was not to be. We asked Levy if sometimes a great notion was a good film. You know, it's a film with good parts. Um, the casting and the um, there are a couple of sequences that everyone who's seen it remembers. But it's, it's not a great film. And I say that with disappointment because I'm a fan of Newman. I'm a fan of Kesey. I'm a fan of Oregon. Um, and, you know, Henry Fonda, you know, uh, relatively late in his career, maybe 10 years, 12 years before he passed. So there's a lot of things in it I want to root for. But it's you can see that it was a troubled shoot and that, you know, that it was an impossible task. Adapting sometimes a great notion is like adapting Finnegan's Wake or Light in August. I mean, it's just too, it's so wed to the page that any attempt to make it concrete for the screen seems doomed to, at best, be a mixed result. Vincent Canby, New York Times film critic, said of Notion, It's not a great film. Paul Newman agreed, but countered that it wasn't lousy. It, it, it remains, um, you know, a, a beguiling thing. Newman would have been a great uh, Randall Patrick McMurphy. He never danced with the uh, an adaptation of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, but he could have played that role, you know, impeccably. Um, and I, I always, I always wish that that had happened. But in the absence of that, to see Newman embodying a, a Ken Kesey hero, the great sequence in the river with Richard Jekyll, who was nominated for an Oscar basically for a sequence where he barely speaks, um, you know, it, 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 it's a movie that, that, as I say, you know, parts of it are, are wonderful. In the whole, it, it has a special place in, in Oregon lore. Not a great movie, but still worth seeing. In honor of Oregon Film's 50th anniversary this year, 50 coniferous trees will be planted in September 2018 at Glen Eden State Park. A plaque commemorating the filming of Sometimes a Great Notion will be placed there too. This is the first of historic film trail signs Oregon Film is putting up, acknowledging not only the film, but also 50 years of collaboration with Oregon State Parks, we hope you'll check it out. Thank you for listening, Ass Kickers, and be on the lookout for future podcasts from ORHistory.com. We hope that you agree that today's episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's podcast was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Doug Kank Crispin and Andy Lindbergh. Citations are available on request. And... Be sure to join us at the Hollywood Theater on September 10th, 2018 at 7.30 p.m. 
for a 35mm viewing of Sometimes a Great Notion. We'd like to thank Matthew Cowan at the Oregon Historical Society for his assistance in this program. And one more big thank you to our Sometimes a Great Notion road trip sponsors, Oregon Film, Water Avenue Coffee, Bull Run Distilling, and Great Notion Brewing. Kick-Ass Oregon History is on Twitter at Oregon underscore History. Follow us on Instagram at Kick-Ass Oregon History. We're also on the Facebook. The email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. Want more Kick-Ass Oregon History in your life? Become a podcast supporter. Learn more at orhistory.com. Just don't get too close to Mr. Kent Crispin. Those cork boots are a little unwieldy. Never give an inch, dear ass kicker. Never give an inch. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass. orhistory.com